0: Reading this morning is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and that can be found on page 1182 in the Church Bibles. That's Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother to the Holy and Faithful Brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, the forgiveness of sins.
1: Help you to see how we're going to work our way through Colossians. Eight sermons in total that will take us up to Advent Sunday and then as a preparation for Christmas. And each of these, uh, the series as we go through Colossians, comes with the question, uh, is there a way out? Jesus, the rescuer. And uh, various other uh, themes that we are um, pursuing These are also linked to the home groups, and uh, if you're not linked to one, that's a good uh, occasion to ask and pray and share and listen and learn in in smaller groups as well. Please see Alan's story or myself if you need to be uh, linked with any home groups. Well, here it is, Jesus the Rescuer. Just a quick outline of uh, where we're going in this Sermon this morning, and perhaps those who are new to the church, that we would take each section at a time, hopefully it isn't too analytical, and see what the Spirit has to say to us through God's Word as we come together. (coughs) So there will be no cross reference. If you keep your Bible open in Colossians, then you can follow through and see exactly where we are going. An outline is very simply that Paul brings a greeting. Um, it's a customary greeting and we shall look at just uh, two key words there then there's a sense of thanksgiving because of God's grace in people's lives and then finally a prayer that's the outline the greeting grace and peace two very powerful words grace and peace interestingly this book if you were to turn to the uh, last verse, it begins and ends with grace. There it is, the last verse. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Is it any help if I say to you this morning? If somebody says to you tomorrow. Hopefully they will. So did you have a good weekend? Did you go to church? Why did you go to church? Grace. Why do you believe in Jesus? Grace. Why do you keep pressing on with all the difficulties you're having? Grace, grace, grace. We have entered into a community, a relationship, a covenant of grace. It's all of grace. And it is quite amazing. The hymn writer is right. But let me stab your conscience for a moment in um, Yancy's book that is called The Jesus I Never Knew. His introduction is taken from his friend who's a counsellor, and he says this. A prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me that she had been renting her daughter two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. She made more money renting out her daughter than one whole night's work. I could hardly bear to hear the sordid story. For one thing, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. I had no idea what to say to this woman. Then, at last, I asked if she'd thought of going to a church... for help. I will never forget the look of pure naive shock... that crossed her face. Church! She cried. Why would I ever go there? I'm already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. Now what's striking about that story... is this... that men and women... I guess much like this prostitute, fled toward Jesus in his day. Why is it that people aren't doing that more today? The question that needs to be posed is this. If people fled so quickly to Jesus for refuge, has the church, now you have to personalize this, it's easy to blame the institutions, isn't it? Don't think of the Baptist church or any other church. Think of people who who confess Jesus as Lord and meet together like this. Has the church lost the gift? Have we sanitized grace? Has it become such a doctrinal thing? That is the great danger. Have we lost the gift? Grace. And this grace, God's favour to us, that we don't deserve, none of us, it brings us, of course, to the heart of the Gospel. And that grace seems to be married to peace. Peace. Peace isn't merely the cessation of conflict, only for it to break out somewhere else. But peace with God. Peace within ourselves. The peace of the Lord Jesus. Grace and peace. These are big words. What we might call, if it helps, an umbrella word that they encompass so much. Grace and peace. Paul is praying here that they might experience the positive well-being in their lives. A deep, Harmony between themselves and God and between themselves and one another. Grace and peace. And then that brings us to thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Look at verses 3 to 8. And at this point I want, to, I want to pose a question. Particularly for those of us who, and for the most part I guess that's most of us, who are familiar with church. News. This is the question uh, I, I want to pose. In your view, from your experience thus far, what would you say is a healthy local church? Think about us as a worshipping community, a local church. What, if you had a piece of paper, what would you write down? What for you would be, if I can use this word, the criteria, the, the, the yardstick. You'd say, Look, you might be new to church, some of you are, I know. You'd say, I don't know much, but I tell you this, this would be for me. What would it be? Well, let me make some uh, suggestions. Would you say, Surely it's got to be an active church? An active church where there are lots of meetings. Every week, a bit like LCBC, I suppose. Or you might say, no, you know, for me it's a growing church. That is the ultimate criteria. As long as new people are coming and staying and coming to faith, surely that is an authentic sign of a mature, healthy church. And some people might say, having been to church for much longer, say, no, no, you know, for me, it would be a giving church. If your faith doesn't reach your pocket, what sort of a faith is it? A giving church. As long as people continue to give financially to the ongoing work of the church, surely that's the thing. That's the acid test. Someone else comes along and says, surely, a true church, is a church where people come to faith. A soul-winning church. An evangelistic church. Where people grow in grace and develop within the Christian community. Somebody else comes along and says, you know, I think it's a missionary church. Here we are in this country. You can go to any part of... uh, Of the community. You'll find a church. Perhaps you're over-churched. Go to many parts of the world where there are millions of people, where there is no church. Surely a church that supports mission is my church. Somebody else comes along and says, you know, I think for me a church is a smooth-running church. Everything is efficient. Everything is done with great organizational skills. And somebody else comes along and says, you know, for me, what would decide a church for me would be a spirit-filled church. A church where there is life and enthusiasm, where gifts are used, where the body of Christ is expressed. That surely is the authentic New Testament church. And perhaps for some, the ultimate, I'll stop here because I guess you could go on. The ultimate is a big church. And I guess as soon as you say that, for some people they would say the opposite, no, no, you know, for me it's a small church because we are faithful. Such is human nature. A big church. Thousands are coming. Just had an email this past week from Kike and Juno who came from they've gone to Florida and they're attending a Baptist church which has six thousand people. Can you imagine? That's a big church. The big <laughs> stuff and a school and a university and a television program and all that sort of thing. Well, surely nobody would say any of these are wrong. And I would love to see all of these and more. I hope you do. Unfortunately, we can stop there. So let me hurry on to say, yes, we need these within, that we need a growing church And a gracious church, and a missionary church, and all of those things. But here, what Paul, and obviously if you look through his letters, and although I state the obvious, it is so important because we can miss it, is this, that he looks for three things. And you know this is faith, hope, and love. And that's his yardstick. That's his yardstick. So let's say what we mean by that. Faith, it describes the confidence that we have in our living head, Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church and our confidence and our hope is based in him. Well, what is hope then? Well, hope describes that stability, the content of our faith as we think about the future. It's in his hands and we can live out our lives with all of its challenges and love describes Christ-like behaviour among Christian people. And those are the authentic signs that make an authentic church. I hope you're not disappointed. How those are worked out. And there's no one local church that's everybody's church. But how we work these out is imperative in terms of how we relate to each other and how we grow in our Christian faith. Faith Hope and love. And you see those repeated constantly throughout uh, Paul's letters. He looks for them. And you and I have every reason to look for those in each other's lives. So Paul's answer then, in most of his letters, is this. Faith, hope and love. Let's stay with these for a moment and give a different angle on them as we are. These tangible signs of authentic Christian experience. This faith, it speaks of our upward dimension. We look up to him. Jesus is risen. He's alive. He's left an empty grave. In him we live, move and have our being. He is the one. John the Baptist was right. He is everything. I'm nothing. He must increase. I must decrease. Of course And love, if faith is the upward, love surely is the outward. What else have you got to look for or to see in people's lives? The outward dimension of belief that we are willing not to hold grudges and we are genuinely willing to forgive because we are forgiven. Why does Paul say that? Well, look look at verse 4. He says, you see, this... Um, He says, we always give thanks to God the Father because, there's a reason. Why? Why are you doing that? Here it is. Here's the reason. Because we've heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. There's no... Sometimes you might like people more, but you should love people equally. To like people more is to have the same interests and we are different. But the love for all God's people surely is an authentic sign. And then hope. If the one is upward, if the other one is outward, this one surely is forward. forward Forward-looking. The agape love that comes from Jesus Christ. Love for all the saints. And a hope for the future. That is the authentic Christian community. As I say to you, how it's worked out with its variety is part of our challenge all the time. Have you noticed then that... Perhaps you haven't. That Paul frequently uses this trio, but here in Colossae, right, stay with me, here in Colossae, he changes the order. Now, you might think I'm reading into it, but stay with me. Notice that what pre- uh, he frequently uses faith, hope, and love, but what does he do here? He speaks about faith, love, and hope. Why does he do that? Is it just a slip of the pen? Is it good indigestion? Why is he doing it? He wants now to emphasize hope. Because, yes, we have these three, but sometimes we need to correct one and, and, and emphasize one. And so here he wants to emphasize hope by keeping it at the end of his list. Why? Why would he want to do that? Well, of course, I think we will see this as the book unfolds. Look, for instance, within, look at chapter 2 and verse 4. We have a little hint. Why does Paul keep hope at the end? I would say to you, the main reason is there's the danger of being sidetracked. Sidetracked down blind alleys into cul de sacs and get stuck. So, chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. That's why I'm saying it. And look at verse 6. So then, just as you see Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in your faith, as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Now then, see to it. You see that? If your hope is active, you see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow or deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than Christ. He's wanting them to keep hope central with faith and love. And just stay in chapter 2 and look at verse 18. Another little key as to why the sequence comes as it does. Verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from this prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with his head from whom the whole body supported, uh, grows together and so on and so forth. So, that... I put that to you. That's the reason. But come back to this thanksgiving. What's the point of connection? This is so personal. And here it is. Look, verse 7. You've learned God's grace in all its truth. How? How has it come to you? Think of your own life for a moment. Think of your Christian experience thus far. You learned it from Epaphras. Epaphras. What's he like? He, he, is, he is a fellow servant. A dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And who told us of your love in the Spirit. What a great mentor. We need mentors, don't we? Epaphras. He was the one, if you like, the... the the, the connection with people as God used him. An example to all leaders. Our S Club leaders are not here now. They're teaching the children as, 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 as we are here this morning. How imperative it is to have good mentors. A service that's marked like this. And what a great role model this is. A servant heart. Some of you folk have got to be careful that you you don't stay in these grudges that you've got. That you get stuck and the servant heart is, is not evident among you. And he's a team player, not just an individualist. And his life is marked by faithfulness, hence, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And finally, here's a prayer. It's a great prayer, really, that uh, Paul Paul makes here. And uh, those of us who were at the home group on Thursday night posed the question. And what this is, we try to do this exercise: How does our praying, the way we pray for each other, compare with the way that Paul prays? What What are the What are the ingredients of praying? It's not now saying my prayers; it's praying. And and it's quite interesting three things he prays for. He prays that they might have knowledge. He prays that they might have holiness and that they might have power. Oh, what an interesting prayer. Have you? When did you last pray for someone like that? To pray that someone will be more informed, that somebody will be transformed, and someone will have power to carry it through in their work, in their home, with their family. It's a powerful prayer, isn't it? John Stott, the great teacher, and he's still alive, though, well into his late 80s now, he, he says this. Let me just uh, quote you. He says, The repetition of these words, knowledge, wisdom, discernment, understanding, in Paul's prayers, is surely very striking. Striking indeed. There can be no doubt that the Apostle regarded these as the very foundation of the Christian life. The very foundation of the Christian life. Of course then, what we need to do with the the time that we have is this, to try to unpack what we mean by knowledge, what, what, what we mean by holiness. Sometimes some people's holiness is rather unattractive and repulsive. Sometimes some people's knowledge is egotistic and you you, you you find that they're always talking about themselves, what they know. Power seems to <laughs> dissipate. So this is a this is a great prayer. This is a prayer for the church, then the church now. And surely it stands in sharp contrast, whatever the way that we pray. You know how somebody once prayed, Lord, get me out of this mess, and I'll never bother you again. That's not very helpful, is it? Not really. This is sort of a praying is, I might know, and and really know, know about you, and know you, and love you, and serve you, and count it all joy to do so. This is a relational knowledge. So verses 9 to 14, these three essentials. Knowledge. Teach me to do your will, says the psalmist 143. you are my God I don't think it's the sort of knowledge of guidance should I buy a new car or um, should I get married I think there's a lot of common grace that helps us this is the knowledge of his will daily as we live out our lives in the big picture those things are important. There's the danger that sometimes our guidance and our knowledge is just mere self-centeredness. One of the things that came out of our home group was this: that often we know God's will. Our difficulties in guidance, our difficulties of obedience, we know it. Just don't particularly want to do it. And this is the knowledge that helps us to carry it out. One uh, teacher. Uh, wanted to write on the end of year reports of his pupils this and uh, the head teacher overruled him it was this if ignorance is bliss your son is going to have a very happy life (laughs) well some children (laughs) need to be told that but ignorance is not bliss it's utter folly It's misery. And we get embroiled in situations that we ought not to. It's not being clever. It's just being clear. I know what you say, and actually I understand. What a great thing that is. That's what it is. It's not exclusive. Indeed, it's the opposite. It is inclusive. And it's practical. And it impinges upon our lives and it helps us to live a godly life. Look again at verse 9. For this reason, since you heard, uh, since we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? What's, what's the reason? Well, look at the next verse. That you may live a life worthy of the Lord. So knowledge takes us into holiness living a life worthy. When I rub shoulders with people, I'm living a life worthy of the Lord. At school, or or, or, or in my work, or with my family, or in my community. Living, relating, a powerful witness, a powerful witness, in a culture of individualism, a mighty witness, that here is a life that is not egotistic, Self centered, leading to growth, fruitfulness, good works. You know, as evangelicals, we make a great deal, don't we? We keep saying it, and, and, I, and rightly so. We are not saved by good works. Equally, we need to trumpet this how can we be saved without them? How can we? Well, it's inconceivable. So here you find in verse 10 that we we pray this, nor that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, may please him in every way. Here it is, bearing fruit in every good work. It's a good work. Don't play down good works. Okay, you're not saved by them, it's by grace. We said that. Can you be saved without them? I doubt it. What else has the world got to look at? Except this attractive, glorious holiness that points to the Lord Jesus—a life worthy of Him. And finally, you we, surely this is all very well, but I've got to go tomorrow to work, and it's pretty difficult, and problems at home, and work is uncertain, and health is unsure. And well, we surely we need power. We need power. That's how Paul prays. And you see, verses 11 to 14, we are strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. To what end? It's almost, it's almost an anticlimax. Perhaps a disappointment that the sermon would end, that, that it should be like this, that you should have great endurance and patience. You just have, to, sometimes there is nothing else but positively to hang in, even if you feel it's just by your fingertips. Power to stay the course. This is a demanding vision. So little wonder we need all power. Why? Well, simply this. That it is beyond our own ability. If it's not there, we can't produce it artificially. This This is by the Spirit. This is a supernatural thing. It's beyond our natural ability. We need spiritual power. That's what he prays. You see it there. Bearing fruit in every good, good way, being strengthened, verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Jesus is the rescuer. And he doesn't just rescue us, and say, there you are, now get on with it, you're on your own. It doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Would any of you do that when your children first go to the secondary school or start junior school? There you are, you're on your own. Get on with it. Well, it's absurd. He's with us. He's the rescuer. And he's with us. He has rescued. He is rescued. He'll go on rescuing. He's good at it. He's had a lot of experience. Spiritual power that is characterized by these two things. Endurance and patience. And what's been rightly said, endurance is in response to this. Today, I'm sitting in church and I have circumstances that are outside of my control and I can do nothing about them. Nothing. I need endurance. At this point, though you can't do anything about them, your attitude to them comes from endurance. And patience is all about people it's this tricky thing about relationships and if some of us have a track record of not keeping them then we're going to need more patience, or if we keep them always on the surface don't let anybody in then we're going to need patience you make a choice I'm going to be vulnerable this person may take advantage of me, so be it I'm going to need patience. It's the long haul. And this Colossian church is much like ours, so we conclude. What is its calling? What is our calling? Our calling is grace and peace. Grace and peace. What is its qualities? What are the qualities of a local church? Faith, love, and hope. The order here that Paul gives. And finally, what is its calendar? What is the hallmark? It is knowledge, holiness, power. Power to live a godly life in an ungodly world to live an unselfish life in a world and in a society that is increasingly individualistic. It's a big calling. I have to close with a a quote from uh, this book, What's So Amazing About Grace? And he quotes his friend, uh, a counsellor, David Seaman, perhaps you've read some of his books, and he says this. Many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these. First, the failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional Grace. Failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace. And the second, the failure among Christians to give out, to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to others. I hope that we are receiving. the deep-seated emotion in our lives, that grace isn't just some cerebral thing, just about the mind, but the heart, that the gospel of grace has penetrated the level of my emotions. It's grace. Grace. That's the one thing supremely that the church has to offer that the world hasn't. Grace in all its fullness.